Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Eric Cohn, filling in for Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by conservative Jonathan Greenberg, Democrat Patrick Hanley, also featuring commentary from, in hour number one, economist Mike Miller, and in hour number two, Jack Butler of National Review. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base, AM560, The Answer, WIND Radio in beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Our phone lines are now open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to join us and be a part of the program this evening. So... Since we have our economist, Mike Miller, joining us this week, uh, that is where I want to start. I want to start on the economy, and I want to start with this piece uh, that from uh, CNBC. The headline of it, unemployment rate unexpectedly rose to 3.8% in August. It, it's always unexpected when it rises like that, isn't it? As payrolls increased by 187,000. Some of the other data from this jobs report Non-farm payrolls increased by 187,000 in August, ahead of the estimate of 170,000. The counts for June and July were revised considerably lower. However, the unemployment rate was up to 3.8, up significantly from July and the highest since February 2022. The, quote, real unemployment rate jumped to 7.1%. Healthcare showed the biggest gain by sector, adding 71,000 jobs. Other leaders were leisure and hospitality, social assistance and construction. The average hourly hourly earnings rose 0.2% for the month and 4.3% from a year ago, both slightly below forecasts. So, Mike, as I said, I want to go to you first. Uh, What are we to make of these uh, new jobs numbers? What are we to make of the state of the economy as it is right now, as Republicans are just beginning to start uh, their debates in the beginning of the primary process, with the implications that, of course, this will have for a presidential election coming next year? Sure. Uh, the um, the data that coming out on labor, uh, if you looked at it uh, from a historical perspective, there's no doubt that an unemployment rate of 3.8% is astounding. Uh, just to be that low for this long is uh, really an achievement for the economy. But now that I've established that historically this is a very low rate, what we often look at is the rate of change. How are things moving in terms of now and pointing towards the future? And they're pointing in the wrong direction. So we did see, of course, 187,000 jobs, but you, we lost in the two months prior to that over 100,000 jobs. So the real adjustment, the real rise in jobs was, uh, was less than 100,000. We see the jump in unemployment. Now, 3.8 is historically low, but there's, a, there's, an old, uh, there's some, a study that was done. It looked at, if you looked at the amount of increase in the rate of unemployment, percentage points, are they associated with recession? And an increase from the bottom to the top of four-tenths of 1%, in 90% of the cases, you are at or in or beginning a recession. And if it happens to go up one-tenth more, which would be 3.9%, let's say, next month, in 100% of the cases where unemployment has risen by this much, you are in recession. So labor has been great but it's not pointing in the best of directions. Here's a couple other things to go along with that. There's something called the ISM Manufacturing Index. 
which has a pretty good record of pointing towards what's going on in the manufacturing and the service sector. That particular ISM manufacturing has been below 50, which means contraction for 10 months. It's not in recession area, but it's been contracting. Industrial production, the output of mines, factories, and uh, utilities, it has been, for the past 17 months, has only been up a total of 2%. Then, of course, I don't need to tell you about the inflation rate. Uh, inflation since Mr. Biden took over, and that's kind of when it started. And remember, I'm an economist first and a, a Republican second. Uh, the amount of increase in prices is more than 15%. And what that has meant is if you look at the, I, I looked up this number, it's called the real average weekly earnings. It's only up one-tenth of one percent in the past 12 months. So what makes people angry that, that they're, they're kind of lashing out at Mr. Biden is that Mr. Biden says we have this wonderful economy and they get, and people have been getting raises, but their money doesn't go as far as it did in the past. And that really kind of makes people angry. I'll add one last piece. There is a particular indicator that is notoriously, um, I'd say, uh, prescient in telling us how people feel, and that's gasoline prices. And when gasoline prices are rising, people are angry. And when they're falling, people are happy. And of course, as we know, gasoline prices are rising. And I'm in the state of Washington where we have roughly the highest in the country because of a, a cap and trade program that we have, but they're riding, rising across the country. So, you know, I, one last thing, I'm convinced <laughs> we can get through this, this particular period with what is called a soft landing. In other words, we could get through this uh, stopping of inflation without creating a recession. But when you get to see all these numbers coming and then you realize that in about a month, all kinds of people are going to have to start paying, start paying back their student loans, which means all that money, in a sense, is going to come out of their spending flow. I, I, boy, it's really hard to tell where, where the economy is going. I know that was long, but I, I, it kind of summarizes. Well, that was the, great. Uh, that was great. Yeah. And that was important information that we're all looking for. So I think you, I, I'd add one other thing to that as well, which is uh, your point about comparisons to uh, you know, the historic number versus like what it has been recently. This will also apply mm -hmm. to the interest rates that are um, not oh, as yes. high as they were than, say, when my parents were first buying a house. Uh, but they are much higher than they have been for the last number of years. Patrick, I oh, want to yeah. go to you. Yeah. You're a Democrat, and I am looking at uh, the RCP average for President Biden's job approval rating on the economy. 38.1% approve, 58.3% disapprove. That's a spread of about 20 points in favor of disapproval. Uh, and yet a lot of what I see from the president is about how great Bidenomics is. Sure. Is this a smart way for him to be running for re-election? The reality is that... President Biden and the administration's approach to the economy has been spot on. I think the context that Mike might have left out is that we're coming off of some pretty unprecedented and incredibly complicated economic conditions where inflation was running at 9%, 10%, and now it's down to 3 Unemployment is resilient and robust, right? The economy is actually doing very, very well and we're avoiding, hopefully, further inflation going forward. So I think 
what what's happening now is the president and Democrats are going out and telling the economic story that is happening. And I think ultimately, as real wages rise above inflation, folks are going to feel that in their pocketbooks. And they're going to feel that way at the pump as prices come down. I would, I would add that energy is actually one area where across the board, it's come down significantly. Uh, and prices have come down, not the rate of increase. So while gas prices fluctuate pretty dramatically, depending on economic conditions, I think we're going to see them come down uh, in the coming months. And last, I just say, Mike, we had the same conversation a year ago. And I think you, you pretty did. much projected that a recession was going to happen. And you said we were off a cliff looking down and there was no ground below us. Uh, and I disagreed. I said that the fundamentals were, were strong and the economy was running hot, which I think is ultimately what happened. We are... We are up against a break. When we come back, I want to get Jonathan into the picture as well as more perspective from Mike Miller. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. 
For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. So don't be here. You can do it if you try. We're back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohen filling in this week for Bruce Dumont and uh, with uh, Mike Miller, our economist with us. We've been discussing the state of the economy and the implications that's going to have for the 2024 presidential race. We had just before the break heard from our Democrat, Patrick Hanley, about uh, why uh, this is actually a positive for Joe Biden. And I want to get uh, our conservative Jonathan Greenberg in there. Uh, I gave you the approval numbers of Joe Biden's handling of the economy. So I, I think at minimum we can say if we assume that everything Patrick said is correct, there is a disconnect between the public and their perception of how Joe Biden is handling the economy and how he contends Joe Biden is actually handling the economy. What, what do you see the current economic state, uh, the impact that that is going to have on the presidential race? Yes, I think there are a couple of things that you have to look at with polling. And one is the extent to which it reflects people's understanding of how others feel. And then there's the the extent to which it, it reflects how they feel personally. I think we all feel the price increases, right? So those are things that we all see every time we go to the grocery store. I know that um, you know feeding three kids has gotten exponentially more expensive in the last year uh, than it was before. Um, so it, you know, I think we all feel inflation and that reflects in the polling data uh, but i the number on how biden is handling the economy i think also reflects how we see other people reacting to the economy not in how it's affecting us necessarily but how it affects other people so i i, I look i think all of this is perception and i think the problem that you run into if you're messaging for the white house is how do you tell people something that they aren't going to want to hear Right, so telling people that everything's fine when they don't feel like it's fine, or telling people that everything's getting better when they don't feel like it's getting better, um, doesn't get you anywhere. Now, one of the numbers that I saw in the AP poll a couple of weeks ago was that Americans now trust Republicans in Congress fifty-five forty-five more than Democrats to handle the economy. When you're losing to Republicans in in Congress to to these particular Republicans in Congress by ten points. I, I think maybe a recalibration might be in order when, you know, people take a look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and say she'd be better on this <laughs> than Joe Biden. I, I would recalibrate personally, but, you know, I don't want to tell Biden how to, you know, look. And the good news is, you know, depending on who they're running against, it really might not matter all that much, which I think we'll get to later in the show. Point taken. I say, Patrick, my question then to you is, yeah. uh, is that all concerning to you that people seem to indicate that they would rather yeah. have George Santos handling the economy <laughs> than uh, Joe Biden? Yeah, it is. It is concerning. It's not terribly surprising. I think Democrats, it's baked into the brand that Americans don't necessarily trust Democrats with the economy the same way they do Republicans. They just haven't in the last 30 years. I think that's short-sighted. Democrats have, have 
ended up creating something like 120% more jobs in the last 50 years than Republican administrations. So I actually think Democrats are quite good at the economy, but that it's a, it's a story that we need to get better at telling. And it's something that I think the president has done well visiting factory sites, visiting factory starts, and then pointing out uh, industrial construction numbers, pointing out all the different places where chips, the infrastructure bill, uh, the, the IRA are going to put money into the economy and then also crowd in private $500 billion of private investment in the economy. So th these are places that I think we need to talk about what Democrats are doing in a more effective way. Because I think, I think you know, the, the, the point is exactly right, that, that folks aren't feeling the way that the, the Biden team uh, feels like they should. Uh, Jonathan, come back to you, and then I'm going to go back. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I, I actually, I don't agree that the, the, the brand is as, as Patrick says it is. I, I think that the Democrats have, in the last 30 years especially, had a much better brand on the economy. The I mean, the uh, the Clinton administration, for starters, oversaw one of the largest economic booms in American history. The um, the Bush administration is blamed for tanking the economy, and Obama came in and, and is, I think, mostly seen as having fixed it. I, I don't think that's baked into the brand at all, whether or not it should be. Um, but uh, the I, I think that this administration is squandering some of the uh, some of the headwind that they should have. Can I just really quickly jump in? Obama was 60-40 bad on handling the economy, according to polls, even though I totally agree with you. He did an outstanding job bringing us back from the brink at the end of the recession. Well, I didn't say he did a good job. I said he was seen as doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I want to, uh, I, I want to come yeah. to you. I want you to put uh, maybe like wear both hats if you can balance them on your sure. head, both your economist and your, um, uh, your Republican hat. How much do you think the economy is going to be a big issue in this upcoming election? I, I think it would be fair for us to assume, and as Jonathan said, we'll probably get to a conversation about this later in the program, that the most likely matchup in November of next year is between President Biden and former President Donald Trump. How likely is it that not just the economy, but, you know, allow me, if you will, any issue other than the personality of those two people to be at play in that election? I think the economy could be a, a strong player in the uh, next election for several reasons. Uh, Patrick is right. Uh, you know, when you looked at something called the yield curve and other factors, a lot of economists were calling for a recession that was going to occur this year. And I think Patrick would agree that if there was going to be a recession, it would have been certainly much better to have one this year rather than next year if you're a Democrat, because the last thing you want to do is be running for president while there is a recession going on. And those who are still calling for a recession do say that when you look at things like the, the payments that have to go now for student loans and, and, uh, and so forth, and when it comes to inflation, you know, I know we have made major strides. You know, it, it was horrible, nine point some, and it's way down. It turns out that historically, it's those last couple of percent that are the hardest to get uh, rid of. And so there's a good chance that there will still be some lingering inflation. And if our wages are not going up as quickly, that people are going to do that. And, you know, this, this disconnect between people's perceptions and the economy is not new. It has happened more than a few times. Uh, like even after the Great Recession, GDP was rising. The economy was doing well under Mr. Obama. But 70% of Americans felt we were in recession. And I was, you know, giving mm -hmm. talks. I'm saying, would you please just look at the, the data, for heaven's sakes? The data are really strong, uh, but people don't. That's not how they do it. It has to do with again with gas prices, and when they look at their their 
their uh, their paycheck. And if I can add just one more thing, you know, inflation is down. But remember that inflation is the rate of change. Mm-hmm. And what has happened is that the price level has gotten high. And even if it's not going up anymore, people still see that these products that they buy still cost so much more than they used to. Yeah even if they're not going up. And this is what people become angry at. Even a a low rate of inflation now, after a period of high rates of inflation, gives you high prices. Mm -hmm. And until we get used to those high prices, people are going to be angry. And so I can, if I had to explain the perceptions, I can. And if I'll add one political point on the side, Mr. Biden might be more believable that we would say, you know, Joe, you're exactly right. The economy is on the whole, especially when you look at the labor market, doing really well. But when he lies to us, to our face regarding something like the border, when we know that he's, I don't know what world he's living on when he says that the border is closed and he's better at the border than anybody has ever been. We know that that's a lie just by looking at the thousands upon thousands coming over. So why should we believe him when it comes to him talking about the economy? I, I think Joe has a as a problem where people just don't believe him anymore. Well, I think that's a question of trust and not only politicians, but our political mm-hmm. system. And Jonathan, I'll, I'll, I'll yes. go to you here. I mean, this is a, this is going to be a pronounced problem probably no matter who is, uh, well, assuming that the most likely nominees are the nominees, that there is a, a huge deficit of trust in those people that people tend not to believe them. They are the two ca- most disliked candidates uh, that could be running for the office and are, uh, because of that, each give the other an opportunity to win despite being as disliked as they are, right? Yeah, I always like being the voice of doom when I come on the show. Um, so the, <laughs> well, it suits you. You do such so. a nice, nice job. <laughs> uh, look, we suffer from uh, institutional brokenness at virtually every level of American civilization. We um, suffer from a lack of interest on the part of average citizens in making the sacrifices and, and taking on the responsibilities to make things better. We are fundamentally broken in a lot of ways. And um, in the past, when we've been fundamentally, fundamentally broken, we've been lucky enough or blessed enough to have someone come along and save us. And uh, it's a pretty bad strategy, actually, for uh, for uh, national renewal. But um, I, I, uh, I'm frankly very worried about uh, where we are and where we're headed. And uh, again, I, I just always love being the voice of the dark cloud. So, <laughs> Well, uh, Patrick, you can try to brighten us up a bit. I mean, do you believe that Joe Biden is capable of restoring that, uh, that sense of trust, especially with the backdrop that he's going to have to endure of the ongoing investigation into Hunter Biden and the now, I think, clearing up uh, connections that he has to his son's influence peddling? My hope is that we'd spend the next year thinking about the democratic vision for the country, what the Biden administration has done, what the Obama administration did before, and what the Biden second term will do in the next four years as we strengthen the economy, as we build it from the middle out, as we create more good-paying union jobs. And I think a lot of the despair that Jonathan is referencing, which, by the way, I agree with, I hear you, uh, comes from people working too hard to pay too much for services that aren't as good and jobs they don't like. And I would, I would suggest that I'm not waiting for someone to come along and save us. I'm 
looking to Americans, and they already are, to organize their workplaces, to organize in politics, and to build a better life for themselves, which, frankly, across the country, we're seeing signals this is starting to happen. So I really think that the, you know, what is the old Bill Clinton line, nothing wrong with America can't be solved with what's right about America, and I think that's happening again. A whole lot more still uh, to discuss this evening, and we will continue when we are back. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. We'll be back right after this. Oh. Goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov.
Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. So glad that you're joining us for the program this evening. And we have reached that uh, appointed portion of the program where we allow our guests to introduce themselves to the listening audience. And we will start with our esteemed economist this evening, Mike Miller. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, I was an economist at DePaul University for 43 years and in... um, this past June, uh, end of June, I retired. So I'm now what is called a professor emeritus. And I've enjoyed my uh, two months of uh, retirement. But in two weeks, I'm going to start a um, one-year stint teaching at a place called Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. So I'm going to unretire. And uh, <laughs> I've enjoyed the two months, but but I just can't. I don't know if anybody on the panel has ever taught before. It is like a natural high. Uh, especially if you have a field like economics, which I absolutely love to teach. And teaching young minds, uh, what uh, Limbaugh used to call them, young minds of mush, to uh, discipline their minds in the economic way of thinking is just, it's exhilarating. Well, I, I remember the story that my uh, my mom used to tell me about when my grandfather retired. He had owned a business in Florida doing uh, screen doors, windows, and vinyl siding, which is a good business to be in in Florida because as is happening yeah. right now, hurricanes will come through and rip all that stuff off. Uh, but he retired and spent about two weeks fixing everything around the house and uh, then started driving her crazy, and she told him, go back to work. So uh, I, can, uh, I can understand uh, where you're coming from with that need, uh, even after yeah. your two months, to, to get back into the classroom. Yeah. Thanks so much for for joining us for the program this evening. We will now go to our Democrat this evening, Patrick Hanley. Sure. Uh, so glad to be on the show. Congratulations, Mike. That's really exciting. I'm glad to hear you're back in the classroom uh, before too long. I'm a small business owner on North Shore of Chicago, uh, where I grew up, and I also lead the local Township Democratic Party. And our conservative this evening, Jonathan Greenberg. Um, well, Mike, I took some uh, econ in undergrad and uh, while the high I often had in class wasn't naturally occurring, it, it was there. <laughs> uh, so, do you feel uh, that helps you better understand economics? No, but I do think it's interesting that I'm not the libertarian uh, panelist this evening. So, um, uh, I help to yet, run yet. a right. I help to run a private. Uh, my day job is that I, I help run a, a private family charitable foundation, um, focusing largely on civic education. Uh, both in college and at the K through 12 levels, uh, and um, I have a lifetime of professional experience in administrative and uh, campaign politics. Reminder that our phone lines are open at one eight hundred seven two three eight two eight nine. That's one eight hundred seven two three eight two eight nine. If you want to be a part of the program, just like John in McHenry County, Illinois, who joins us now on line one, John. You're on Beyond the Belt. Hey, uh, good, good Sunday evening. Thank you, and a great Labor Day weekend to all. Um, I wanted Thank to uh, jump into this conversation concerning jobs and what's happened with jobs during the Biden administration. And Mr. Hanley was hitting some of this, uh, talking about the good-paying union jobs, and yet um, President Biden's legislation, particularly the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, has stayed stalled in Congress, and it's been that way in the last Congress, you know, prior to the midterms, and plus his Secretary of Labor nominee could not be confirmed. I mm-hmm. mean, they haven't withdrawn the nomination. So, and then to the others, to, to all the panelists, you know, something that's been hitting the radar screen, and it hit again today during church, has to do with BRICS. 
and with the addition of Six Nations into BRICS, and that's, that sounds like it's going to be hitting the U.S. economy very soon, especially with our debt load. And uh, why is that not even being mentioned in any of the discussions? I'm going to be, I'll stay on the line and listen, and uh, we'll go from there. John, it's great, great to thanks, hear from John. you. Why don't, uh, Patrick, we go for you first? Yeah, yeah since, since the last time you called in, I've done a little bit of homework, uh, and I've, I've, I've looked into what's going on with the Labor Secretary, the Interim Labor Secretary, and it sounds like that is a, a Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema holdup. So while Democrats do control the Senate, we control them with two votes, and two of our Democrats aren't very good team players. So unfortunately, a lot of the really progressive things we want to do with labor, like passing the PRO Act, is being hung up uh, by a couple folks facing tough Senate elections that I'm sure we'll get to in the second hour. Okay, well, I have to respectfully point out on the PRO Act, it's not, Senator Manchin's actually uh, a co-sponsor in the Senate. So mm-hmm. I know Cinema has not, I know Senator Kelly has not, and the right. big one is Senator Mark Warner. So right, point that in out. Virginia. Right, and, but then Senator Manchin is holding up the Labor Secretary's confirmation, right? That is true. Now, did, did Senator Tester make a public statement that he would vote in favor of confirming uh, Acting Secretary Sue? I'm not sure. I didn't see that. But again, another really interesting political fight that's coming up next year. So I'm sure all of this is 2024 calculus. Uh, and I would just suggest to the senators that I'm no, I know are listening in tonight, uh, labor is polling at 70% among Americans. It's never been this popular, I think, since the 1960s. So this would be a really good time yeah, I, to I come understand. out and support. I, uh, I do remember last year uh, Gallup came up with a, a similar poll. I know there's a recent one that was released this past week. But, you know, even though labor, and I, you know, I support organized labor just like the next person, yeah. um, but there are nearly 60% of Americans in those polls, at least the Gallup poll, who would not join a union right. under any circumstance, even though they supported a union. So that, that, that's yeah. another balancing act, too. But let's talk about BRICS. So I just wanted to exchange that with yeah, you. Uh, John, thanks. I uh, appreciate uh, your call. Yeah. And I want to uh, first go to Mike because I think you had something you wanted to add there. And then you can explain the BRICS things to everybody else who doesn't understand what that is, even though I totally get it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a block of countries that want to exercise power. And BRICS has to do with Brazil, Russia, BRI, India, China. Uh, South Africa, and China. And I, I I just uh, and the four countries they added like six countries mm-hmm. and I think if you added all six countries together and the size of their economy they might equal the you know the size of Illinois mm-hmm. or maybe Texas but uh, they're they're really tiny countries. What uh, which astounds me is the whole world knows of course that Russia is a mess. They are controlled by a totalitarian dictator. You have China which is becoming more and more. Uh, introverted, they're 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 controlled by a communist who wants to create, I don't know, some kind of empire or whatever. Why in the world would would countries of the world ever embrace the currencies of these monstrous countries? I just can't believe that they can exercise any kind of economic power. Uh, it would be nice though, and I'm not sure exactly how Mr. Biden would do it or Mr. Whoever uh, and um, whoever happens to be the president next time. Get somehow to say, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen of other these countries, we're the future. Freedom yeah. and, and and economic freedom and so forth is the future, not totalitarian nonsense like you have in Russia and uh, and China. I just and like I say, South Africa, tiny country. Um, India, yeah. that, that's that's a player. I think they're just trying to exercise. They want to be noted, but Brazil, 
that's uh, you know it's it's the up and coming country until it collapses, and it's the up and com coming country until it again collapses, and so nobody's going to focus on Brazil. I, I think uh, Patrick, it could be a flash. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Yep, uh, Patrick, no, to you, and uh, and then Great. I want to move on. Yeah, just to jump in, I think uh, the the Biden administration foreign policy has done a really nice job of bringing countries out of the orbit of China and Russia. So a number of the countries that joined joined BRICS include Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Iran, famous friends, and that is that gets to the challenge at the basis of BRICS is that you know you put India and China in the same room, you put Iran and Saudi Arabia in the same room. This is a collection of countries that is going to get nothing done because they actually share very few strategic interests. Whereas the United States has been making the case to each of them, hey, you're better off with us. And we've been meeting with some oh, yeah. success. Uh, Jonathan, I know uh, foreign policy is one of your uh, key focuses. So as we might say, that's bait for you. Uh, <laughs> want to uh, jump in uh, and tell us how you think the Biden administration is doing from a foreign policy perspective. Well, so I mean, so on the look, the, and I wanted to go back to BRICS. The, so the there is one key thing that they all share, except perhaps India, which is hatred of the West. Uh, so, I mean, there's that and, and hatred of Western impact on the world. So in the case of Brazil, at least in the case of Lula. So the, um, the, the it's a, it's essentially a, a non-aligned movement um, to destroy American economic hegemony in the world, uh, to replace the dollar as the, uh, as the main currency that's used around the world, and to it, that's that's what they want to do to undermine the U.S. U.S. Yeah. influence around the world. So, and l listen, I don't think that I'm not worried about Brazil. I'm not worried about South Africa, but I mean, I think dismissing China and India, which have what two plus billion people between them. Okay. Uh, I mean, Brazil's only two hundred something million people, but it, you know they're led by Lula, so I'm not too worried about them. And South Africa's tiny, but. But certainly India and, and China are a, a huge concern, China especially. China is particularly a concern because they're interested in building up their military uh, capabilities. We will be in conflict with China probably militarily in the next 50 to 100 years. Uh, and uh, I think that that's something that we need to be preparing for, and we're not. Well, that's not true. We, it, it, we are, we've made strategic entrepot with India in a number of different ways, including militarily. And India is not a fan of a rising China. So we've already taken India, Japan, South Korea off the map for China. And I got to say, our foreign policy has done a really nice job of, of rebalancing the playing field in our yeah, favor. I, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't think playing footsie with a country or entre, I don't know what word you used, but the, <laughs> the, I, 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 don't, I don't know that that takes them off the table for China. I think oh, it the, certainly the, does. If you listen to what Prime Minister Modi says about China, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we're uh, we we are short on time. Uh, so there's nothing that I could jump into at the moment that I think we would have enough time for e any of you to expand on. So uh, we will focus our attention uh, to the next segment where I want to come back to a conversation that we were having on this program last week when I was on, which was about the Republican debate and about the Republican primary field. Uh, that may be uh, kind of a big turn from the conversation we were having, but nonetheless, an important one uh, that I want to get our guest's perspective on when we return. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway.
Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, a kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. We're back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And as I said before the break, I do want to move on to uh, the event of two weeks ago that I was discussing on this program as a guest last week, which was the Republican debate that happened. Mike, I'll, I'll go to you first. Uh, one, did you watch it? If you didn't, I assume you're aware of a lot of what has transpired at the debate and in the wake of it. Uh, what did you think? And do you think that uh, what we saw there is indicative of anything that will change the course of the Republican primary race? 
I, I did not watch it. I, I'm one who wanted to wait till the field has been winnowed out before I listen to everybody who's there. But I've watched a lot of snippets uh, regarding it. And of course, Vivek Ramaswamy was like the man that everybody turns to. If I could just find a Republican candidate who would invoke the philosophy of Vivek about America's exceptionalism, our founding principles and so forth, but be electable. I mean, nothing. I, I think Vivek is probably 10 or 20 years too soon. But if we had one of the older people uh, that would actually embrace much of what he's saying, uh, I, I think that, that Republican would be unbeatable. But we don't seem to have anybody who's willing to embrace all of these different things that would separate us from uh, the establishment. You know, part of the, what I have a problem with is that I think the establishment Democrats and establishment Republicans are the ones running the country. And I, I think we could use some kind of new blood. Uh, you know, I, I've mentioned on the show before, I, I didn't support Trump in 16. I did in 20. And I cannot now. I, uh, I, but, you know, if it comes down to Joe versus Trump, I almost have no choice because I think Joe would be dangerous. I think he has dementia and he could not possibly make it through four more years. And Kamala Harris just scares the kajibers out of me. Jonathan, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, <clears throat> I've i met Vivek a couple of times. He serves on uh, a few boards of organizations that I'm involved in. Uh, there's no question that he speaks well uh, and that on issues of things like American exceptionalism and wokeism, I think he's terrific. Um, I would prefer somebody who actually knows something about policy, mm -hmm. uh, who has maybe some executive experience, and who doesn't change positions as often as he changes underwear. So that would be nice, um, because I don't have any idea what Vivek presumptuous on your part. I don't have any idea what Vivek actually stands for or what he would actually do in office. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he's a pretty talker, and um, that's great as far as it goes. He should make a lot of money giving speeches, and um, I would be interested in hearing some of those, but I don't want him as president. I don't want him in any elected office. Listen, I, I think everybody, everybody, if you're serious about not having Trump as the nominee, every Republican should demand that everybody not named Ron DeSantis drop out of the race because nobody else has a chance. Nobody else can raise the kind of money. Nobody else, can, uh, nobody else has a chance. And um, whether you like DeSantis or not, if the goal is to not have Trump as the nominee – DeSantis is the only one that has a chance to beat him, and the, the, we all have to hold our nose and try to take the party back from Trump and Trump cultists, and these people are cultists, and they've turned the, the, the Republican Party into a pseudo-religion, and it, the only way to beat them is to beat them, and we're not going to do that with eight or nine wannabes. I mean, what was Asa Hutchinson even doing on the stage? Come on. So, Jonathan, let me stay with you real quick and, and ask you, um, does the last several months of the campaign, which while, yes, there have been other people running as well as Ron DeSantis, but I, I think you would probably agree it hasn't gone as well as the DeSantis team had hoped that it would, hence the turnover in the campaign, yeah. a lot of the very online problems they've had. D does that not um, you know, make you question the assertion that you have that he is the only person with a chance? No, it doesn't, because he's also the, he's the only person who's been able to raise the money that he can. He's the only person who's able to change uh, his strategy. Yeah, no, it's been a disaster. I mean, he's been terrible. It's also look. It's also this the 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 cultism in the Republican Party that has been a problem. That you know, the the more the more Trump gets indicted, 
the better he does because the more Republican voters see it as piling on Trump and their response is, you know, to, to, to back him up whether he really deserves it or not, which is a screwed up way to do politics. And we'll get in the next hour to, to what impact that's had. But no, I actually think that if you, if you want to take the party back from Trump, you have to identify a person who can do it. One person. You can't have three people, four people in the race because that divides it enough that Trump will win. And so I think that certainly at the very least, maybe not. Maybe Nikki Haley doesn't have to drop out right now. And Vivek, I think, is still polling well enough that he's probably – I'm sure he's not going to drop out. By the way, I'm pretty sure that his role in the race is to take votes away from other non-Trump people by being in Trump's mm-hmm. pocket – and which is why Trump hasn't attacked him at all. Mm-hmm. So the um, but anyway, the, look, I I think that it, maybe a couple of people can stay in, and we'll see. But everybody who's poll, I mean, I I I actually really like Mike Pence. He's a good man. Um, I think he was a good governor in Indiana. I knew him when he was in Congress when I was at APAC. Um, he should drop out right now. Uh, uh, Senator uh, um, Tim Scott should drop out. Asa Hutchinson should drop out. Chris Christie's not going to drop out because his, he's there to attack Trump, but. He's, he's all of these people are distracting from what the the question the only question that matters in the Republican primary do we want Donald Trump or not uh, Patrick very quickly to you <laughs> about 30 seconds yeah. um, of the people that you saw up on stage in that debate uh, who do you think presents the biggest challenge to Joe Biden in November of next year if they were the nominee Ooh, if I could take my pick of any of them I think a, uh, a Nikki Haley emboldened by a strong nomination by her party would be a really tough challenge to Joe Biden, but it's never going to happen because that lane of the Republican Party is just too small. And it makes me wonder, where are the 2006, 2003, 1998 Republicans? Like, where are the you know conservative principled folks who talked about foreign policy and uh, getting our you know employment numbers up? I just don't – it's – I feel like – uh, somebody whose friend is going through an awful experience, and I want to help, uh, but not so much that they reelect Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the uh, that is the choice before the Republican Party, uh, and well, it is it is going to be an interesting one. A, a whole lot more to discuss, but as we come up here on the end of this hour, uh, this is when we will bid adieu to our friend Mike Miller. Thank you so much for your perspective on the economy and everything else that has been going on that we have been discussing in this first hour. Coming up in hour number two, we'll be joined by Jack Butler of National Review as we turn turn our attention to the race for the Senate in 2024. Be back in just a bit. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level. Like a good neighbor. 
State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Matthew. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you. Hair. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey. Want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Song again. Here's that song again. For the hundredth time today. Here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
We are back in hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohen filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. A reminder, our phone lines are open now at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to be a part of the program with us this evening. And uh, here in the second hour, we are pleased to be joined by Jack Butler, who is the submissions editor at National Review Online, a media fellow for the Institute for Humane Ecology. And a 2022-23 Robert Novak Journalism Fellow at the Fund for American Studies, a fantastic organization. And thanks to Jack for joining us. And I wanted him to join us because in this hour I want to discuss or at least begin by discussing the Senate map in 2024. And I noticed Jack had uh, two pieces that he wrote recently about two of those races to uh, kind of lay the groundwork for what the Senate map looks like of the 34 races that will be contested in 2024 right now. Uh, it is a 51-49 Democrat-held Senate. Of course, it is uh, 48 Democrats, 49 Republicans, but three independents, those three independents caucus with the Democrats, giving them a majority. One of those Democrat, or one of those independents that caucuses with the Democrats is up in uh, this upcoming election, and that is Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Uh, and really, all of the action is on the uh, the Democrat side. The Republicans have a whole lot of opportunities here to pick up races. The three toss ups, according to the Cook Political Report, Arizona and Kirsten Cinema, Ohio and Sherrod Brown and West Virginia and Joe Manchin. And then the other really contestable races, Lean D in Cook Political Report's evaluation, the open seat here in Michigan, where I am. Uh, John Tester in Montana, Rosen in Nevada, Casey in Pennsylvania, and Baldwin in Wisconsin. But as uh, astute political followers were know, that means the Republicans will need to put up candidates that have a chance of winning those races. And what we saw in 2022 is they didn't do a whole lot of that. Uh, one of those people that was unsuccessful in 2022, Jack, you wrote about in Blake Masters in Arizona, who looks like he's going to run again. For God's sake. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I find this perplexing. Thank you for having me on, by the way. And I would love to be able to point out how much of an inadequate candidate Blake Masters was in the 2022 midterms. He, you give him that he won his primary on the Republican side, but as a candidate, he left a lot to be desired. Probably the most notable thing about him, other than the fact that he was bankrolled entirely by his boss Peter Thiel, or almost entirely, is that he produced these bizarre videos that were often set in the arizona desert and i for the life of me cannot figure out who he was trying to appeal to with these in one of them he went out into the middle of nowhere and just fired a, a gun with a silencer that he took care to make sure to emphasize was made in germany and said that at least twice so he was just a weird guy a weird candidate charisma deficit and naturally such people in our public life feel the need to continually run for office so <laughs> we have a report in the wall street journal last week that he's going to try again uh but we have a we have an additional wrinkle i don't know stop me if you want to elaborate on the wrinkle eric but i'd, I'd be happy to myself go for it okay I'll, I'll continue then uh we have carrie lake who was the also failed uh candidate in arizona this time for governor and she lost more narrowly, narrowly enough for her at least to claim that she didn't lose at all. Hmm. But if you're if you're a MAGA type person, 
you want your MAGA from Carrie Lake and not from Blake Masters. She did better in her race, even though she lost, than Blake did. I think Blake was the uh, losingest, if that's a word I can make up, candidate of the statewide R's running in Arizona that year. And so we have the possibility for a, 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 what I would view as a conservative who is actually interested in serious governance as a very much a let them fight situation. <laughs> um, I am very much willing to let these two have it out and just hope that something else results besides one of them winning the Senate primary if they both end up running. So, yeah, Jonathan, that's where is, I am. Uh, the best is the best way to sum up this race from your perspective, uh, much like the tagline to the uh, great sci fi action film Alien versus Predator. Uh, whoever <laughs> wins, we lose. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it certainly seems that way. So. Um, in 22, we, we basically had five races that were winnable. Um, and I, I, uh, I'm, I, I remain intensely frustrated that we failed to, to capitalize on any of them. In only one of them did we nominate our best nominee in Nevada. We nominated Adam Laxalt, who I think was a, a good nominee uh, and, and did pretty well against Catherine Cortez Masto and, and could have won that race and didn't. But in the other four... We nominated just about the worst person we could have. We nominated Fetterman in Pennsylvania. We nominated. We cleared the field for Herschel Walker in Georgia. Uh, we nominated Blake Masters over Mark Burnovich in Arizona. I think Burnovich would have done significantly better. Maybe he wouldn't have won. I don't know. But but we and we we uh, we nominated Don Bolduc in, in New Hampshire, and those were all winnable races uh, that we we just put our worst possible foot forward. If we do the same thing. Uh, next year, uh, we will deserve the same whooping that we got uh, in 22. We've got what we just rattled off what six, seven winnable races. And by the way, if you add those to the five winnable races that we had last cycle, there's no reason to think that we couldn't be going into January of 2025 with a Republican president, uh, a Republican House, and a filibuster-proof majority in a Republican Senate. But we have. Screwed that up completely. Uh, looks like we're going to renominate Trump. It looks like we're probably going to lose the House, and we're going to blow our opportunity. I think we'll still win it. With their, the, the map is so favorable to the Republicans in twenty four that we probably still pull out a Senate majority. But uh, it, it, it's you know missed opportunities are are absolutely killing us. Yeah. If only you had a different Can Republican I add briefly, party. Yeah. Can I add briefly the uh, in Arizona? I'm not sure. I don't have offhand the polling for all the races, but I know in Arizona that. Voters surveyed just before that race said that they preferred a Republican majority in the Senate. So mm -hmm. Blake Masters kind of blew that. Yeah. He, the, the voters wanted Republican majority, and they looked at Blake Masters and were just kind of weirded out enough to reelect the incumbent Mark Kelly. Jay, can I quickly j jump in and ask what's going on with Gallego beating Cinema and Cinema's vote going to the Republican? Yeah, the, so we haven't really touched at all on the so the Republican aspect of that race is only one of the many splendid colors that could go into that so cinema as we said cinema is now an independent uh, on the democrat side it looks like gallego's the likely nominee but the fact that this is shaping up to be a three-way race although cinema hasn't said she's going to run for the seat again i suspect she will so the fact that it's a three-way race is the really the only thing i think that would give uh a Republican of the Lake or Masters variety a chance there. I, it's really impossible for me to predict in advance what happens in the spread of vote between Cinema and Gallego. Arizona is a justifiably, or it's a historically and proudly 
uh, unique state. Its senators tend to be mavericky, one might say. As, yeah, mavericky, as do its voters. Uh, I, I guess a key to winning their support is not to tell them, as Carrie Lake did, uh, it, like with her with weeks to go, maybe even days to go in her campaign, don't vote for me. That's what she said about McCain Republicans, of whom there are a lot still in the state, it turns out. So I just have no idea how that will shake out. I, I, it, it's it's it, TBD. I know I'm supposed to yeah, prognosticate, but this is about as far as it I is can a, uh, It is a certainly an odd uh, sales pitch from any kind of a nominee for office to tell people not to vote for you. Typically, it's, uh, it goes the other way. A lot more to discuss in uh, not only Arizona, but in uh, my home state of Michigan, which we will get to, and the other important Senate races in 2024 when we get back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. Bye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top-ten public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. So talk 
Back again on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont, and uh, we've been uh, discussing the Arizona Senate race, one of uh, a number of Senate races, which would be pickup opportunities for the Republicans, uh, widely believed that uh, the Republicans had a lot of pickup pick up opportunities in 2022, but as uh, we've noted, they uh, failed to do so, and Jonathan Greenberg, I believe you had something you wanted to say about uh, that race. Yeah, just very briefly about Kerry Lake, I just, it, it I, I find it galling isn't strong enough uh, that someone who can't accept that she lost and goes around belly aching about the refs in, in America that used to be disqualifying it used to be disqualifying for you to cheer for an athlete who did that and it used to be disqualifying for politicians and uh, it, it just it, it absolutely blows my mind that we have created this grievance culture on the American political right that can't accept losing uh, that actually finds virtue in losing um, and then belly aching about the refs. I, I just, I, it's inexcusable to me that she even still has a political career that she can open her mouth and anyone listens. Jack, I want to turn to the other piece that you wrote, which uh, is close to me, quite literally, because it is the uh, the area and the state where I live in Michigan. Uh, when I moved here to Michigan, uh, my congressman was one Peter Meyer who was uh, defeated in a primary by a very uh, MAGA Republican who then proceeded to lose to the Democrat in the general election. Uh, it looks like Peter Meyer uh, may be running in the Republican primary for the open U.S. Senate seat, Debbie Stabenow, who I believe uh, was elected the same year uh, Andrew Jackson was elected president <laughs> to serve in uh, the state of Michigan, or at least something close like that. Um, is retiring and there will be an open seat and uh, you also had a piece on uh, peter meyer's exploratory committee and taking a look at uh, running in that race yeah so let me start by summarizing the the prequel part of the saga of peter meyer because i find it one of the most depressing civic civic spectacles that we've experienced of late so one of peter meyer's first votes as a member of congress was to impeach donald trump for january a vote that i find eminently defensible but that Forces that coalesced, let's call them a faction, perhaps, that's what the founders would have called them, coalesced to find this unacceptable. And so a MAGA challenger was summoned in the form of John Gibbs and ran against him in his primary. And a, a very, very insidious thing happened. It was the, this, it was a trend. Democrats essentially backed Gibbs. Now, they, they did this by running ads that were supposedly critical of him. But these functioned in a way that conservatives looking at the ad would be like, oh, that sounds nice. And so it was essentially an in-kind contribution because Democrats believed correctly, it turns out, that Gibbs would be an easier opponent. So Peter Meyer, a decent man trying to do the right thing, was primaried and then a Democrat won his seat. So I, I've, I'm encouraged that he's not uh, totally daunted by the task of returning to politics after this. Uh, I, I think he would be a good candidate. I don't know if he would be able to win. Michigan's in a weird political situation right now, both right and left. But uh, I, I would encourage it as as someone who wants to see good people run for office instead of bad people always run for office. 
Uh, Patrick, I want to go to you and ask a question based on what Jack raised there, which was, um, I, you know, I think you described it earlier as the, the situation in the Republican Party is like, you know, a friend who's going yeah. through, uh, you know, a really bad streak. Yeah. Um, it seems that uh, the, the, the people on your same team decided to add fuel to the fire there offer and them things tequila shots did, like with peter meyer <laughs> uh yes yeah I'll offer them tequila shots and maybe yeah. a little cocaine uh just to uh, see what would happen I know. uh and and what happened was to their political benefit uh but i think one could make the argument that for the state of our you know, politics it, not a really good thing do, yeah. do you think that that was the right move that the democrats made in trying to boost the people that they described as the most extreme for the purpose of their own political advantage. Let me try and let me try and contextualize this. Democrats, because we have such a narrowly divided House and Senate, Democrats feel like we are playing for all the marbles in every election, and we take elections incredibly seriously because we believe they're a matter of life and death. We believe they're a matter of whether or not we continue as a Republican as a democracy. And I apologize if I sound histrionic, but really that is the context that we're coming from. So, you know, in the, the great words of Chicago politics ain't beanbag, when Democrats play hardball, like encouraging co conservatives in Western Michigan, that this guy is so extreme, so conservative, wink, wink, with the hopes that they nominate him as a more defeatable candidate in the general, I understand where they're coming from. But to, I think, the question that you're asking and the point that is being made broadly yeah, it's, I think it's terrible. I think it's a really bad substantive thing to do to our democracy to, <laughs> to, you know, incentivize the crazy wing of a party that we should be trying to resuscitate. Um, so Jonathan. Patrick and I chatted a little bit about this in the break, and so the uh, I, I agree with him that the the problem here is the zero sum nature of our politics, yeah. uh, especially at the federal level, um, and and the uh, catastrophizing. Uh, about what will happen if the other side wins. Uh, I think the answer to that is to get as much power out of Washington as possible and back to states and back to localities. Um, and I, I would love to see our Democratic friends uh, join in that effort. Uh, but, uh, but I think Patrick's, Patrick's absolutely right about that. But I will say that part of the, the people that I blame are always voters. Mm -hmm. And the voters in the Republican primary had every opportunity to know where those ads were coming from and to read something about what was going on, and to vote differently, and they chose not to. And the fact that uh, the DCCC went into that race and decided to treat Republican voters like they were stupid, and then Republican voters acted like they were stupid, is only <laughs> partially the fault of the DCCC. Yeah, Jack, I, I want to come back to you, and in, you know, following your writing in National Review, and we've had you commenting on the uh, the kind of rough and tumble politics of all of this, but you're also a dealer in uh, ideas, and I think particularly interested in the state of the political right. How do we move out of this kind of catastrophization mindset that seems to so permeate people on the political right that I think really has been it has been bubbling up for years. I can trace, you know, uh, people who are listening to this program who've heard me as a commentator, not just as a fill-in host for Bruce, know where I'm coming from politically, but I was involved with the Tea Party movement uh, starting in, in 2009, 2010, and really the, the seeds for a lot of this were being planted back then. So it's this is not just a Trump-brought-on phenomenon that was really laying the seeds for what would become the moment we're dealing with right now. What do we do about all of this? Well, on an immediate practical level, 
I would suggest that basically the forces that remain on the right and within the Republican Party that dislike the catastrophization actually act upon it. So a good example of this, we've talked a lot about Republican screw-ups in 2022, so let's focus on a couple of good things that happened, in my view, uh, for in those in those midterms and in those primaries. Probably the mo- the standout example is Brian Kemp's conduct in Georgia. Yeah. So like like these other uh, Republicans, Kemp got a primary challenger, David Perdue, who had lost the uh, set Georgia Senate runoff just after the 2022 election, and Kemp decided actually I'm going to beat this guy. And there was a great political profile after he did it that just showed how scorched earth he went. And sometimes if, if the scorched earth goes in the other direction, you you sort of sometimes feel like oh wow that's brutal but he was doing it he was being scorched earth in favor of good things and that's great i it drives me crazy that people on the right who are decent humans don't try to assert their interests in the way that kemp does more so that that on a practical level is what can be done i guess on a more philosophical rhetorical level i would agree with jonathan that uh lowering the stakes of our politics through uh returning things to the federalist constitutional archite- architecture that we have available would go a long way and just to remind people that it's still something that works and can function and is the proper way to channel these passions through our politics we have ambition ch- uh checking ambition for a reason it was built into the way our system was designed and i think it can still work uh but if people stop believing in it and just keep trying to go outside of it, whether on left or right, then it won't. Can I can I just it, jump in? I don't know how much time we have left, but yes, Patrick, I, I think go ahead. another yep. great way to think about this is political reform. Uh, so HB1 that the Democrats have been trying to pass for years and years that would increase voting access, that would mandate independent ger- redistricting, so to end gerrymandering, and then to explore alternative vote methods like ranked choice vote, which have these moderating effects on primaries. So when you're ranking candidates, extreme candidates don't win with pluralities, which make general elections a lot more palatable. Jonathan, uh, jump in on particularly that last part there. I don't expect you to endorse uh, the the Democrat (laughs) legislative agenda. Um, But does anything interest you about ranked choice voting at least in a primary process? (laughs) No, it's uh, a a total question. So, Jack, it's a total non-starter because I I don't want any more moving parts than we already have. We have too many moving parts as it is. In fact, I would like to dial back early voting. I'd like to dial back. I think we should all vote. On one day, it should be a national holiday. Everybody should, to the greatest extent possible, unless you have a real reason to be voting absentee, you're out of the country, you're infirm, for whatever reason, we should dial it back. We all do it together on the same day. I thought government was something we all did together. That's what Barack Obama told me. That's what Uh, happens when you get more people voting, like through vote by mail. I, I don't. The, we the, want more people to vote. I think that the, 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 we all do it together on the same day. And the the more moving parts you have, the more problems you create, the more confusion you sow, the more uh, the more we can walk conspiracy we can theories you have. at the same time. I don't. I want to. Thirty seconds. Thirty seconds left, Jack. Uh, you wanted to say something? Oh, I just said vote by mail can work to the advantage or disadvantage of whoever uses it. So in Florida, DeSantis encouraged people to vote by mail because it was the system in place. The Republicans won Florida. And Trump discouraged them from uh, voters from doing it in other states and then complained when uh, he lost those states. So it's it's, it's a matter (laughs) of working with the system you have, I think. Right. We, uh, we are coming up here on a break, and when we come back, I, I want to stay in the Senate in one aspect, but less about the electoral politics of it and more about the, um, 
Well, the age of all of it. Uh, more on that <laughs> when we are back. Eric Cohen filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media, many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, Drinking.samsa.gov. Back again on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. <laughs> and earlier this week, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, was taking questions from reporters and uh, had another, uh, well, I mean, let's just be honest, frightening incident uh, where he froze up and couldn't answer for about 30 seconds. This is now the second time that this has happened to uh, Mitch McConnell. He had suffered a fall uh, earlier this year and a bad concussion. 
Uh, he did get uh, a note from an attending physician that said this is related to lightheadedness and that he had been cleared to work. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the kind of thing that, um, if it is not to uh, Republicans, should be concerning to Republicans. And I think highlights a, uh, well, a trend that we see here. Uh, Mitch McConnell, 81 years old. Uh, if we want to run through some of the other people in the upper echelons of our federal government, especially the Senate chamber, uh, Joe Biden is 80. Donald Trump is 77. Chuck Schumer is 72. Dianne Feinstein is 90. The average age in the U.S. Senate is 64 years old. 34 senators are aged 70 or older. Now, of course, this is all by the voting of the people in those states. Uh, but, uh, uh, Jonathan, I'll come to you first. If, uh, one, if Mitch McConnell has another incident like this, do you think he can continue, uh, as he is right now, continuing to be the Senate minority leader for the Republicans? And even if he doesn't, does this is this going to hamstring Republicans in what is certainly going to be one of their lines on Joe Biden coming into next year's presidential election, which is that he is too old and just not physically and mentally up to the job? So uh, I actually said on Twitter that he needs to that there needs to be a full explanation um, of what's happening with him and uh, immediately. And we didn't really get that. But uh, no, it's, it's not going to prevent him from being majority leader. It's not going to prevent him from – I don't think that – he's not leaving the majority leader's office um, by – they're going to have to drag him out with his fingernails in the, in the furniture or in a body bag. And uh, so the, I, I, don't, I don't anticipate that changing anything. I, I don't know if it I – don't, I don't know if it undermines the ability of, of uh, Republicans to use that uh, line against Biden. I think it would be – really sad if we had to use that line against Biden. I mean, I think we can just let people see it for themselves. I don't think you want to start attacking somebody for being old. I, mm -hmm. I hope they don't. Um, but I think a, a bigger question is, you know, my generation, Gen X, where the hell are we? Um, the, 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 <laughs> the, the reason that we've got septuagenarians and octogenarians in federal office is because my generation is nowhere to be found. And uh, it's 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 really just it's very disappointing that we're essentially going to skip over um, Gen X, which I still think is the last good generation, the last <laughs> group of people who actually had to let themselves into the house and not burn the place down and were allowed to play in the front yard and uh, people who are capable of solving problems without having their hands held. But uh, when it comes to national leadership, we've done absolutely nothing. And uh, so it's no wonder that you know we're going from boomers and now we're waiting for millennials to, to catch up. We've got Vivek uh, in the Republican primary, so we we've skipped over boomers entire or we've skipped right. over Gen Xers entirely, and it's very sad. Uh, Jack Butler, as uh, someone who once hosted a podcast called Young Americans, I believe some intergenerational warfare has been declared by Jonathan here. So feel free to uh, step in and defend uh, younger people if you uh, still feel want to do so, as well as to answer the questions I posed to him about Mitch McConnell's leadership and what this will mean for the 2024 election. First off, I want to say I was able to play in my front yard unattended my family we had a bell that we would ring at dinner time and <laughs> there you go who knows where in the neighborhood we would be so yeah maybe we just had a sort of old-fashioned childhood but whatever it was i enjoyed it and uh, not all hashtag not all millennials <laughs> as for mitch it would be easy for me as a younger person to make the case against our gerontocracy i have in certain cases and in certain ways made that case there's the boomers and people above the boomers simply are not leaving the stage 
when they were young, it was great that they were young, and now that they're old, it's great that they're old. The consistent thing is just them. But I, ha- I have a soft spot for Mitch. Mitch has been a powerful and forceful presence in our politics for almost for a quarter century at least. Uh, and if you go back to like 2000, 2001, when he was arguing against campaign finance reform, for example, until recently, he seemed like basically the same guy. And so the fact that he's having these public episodes of senility is really, it's, it's very saddening to me because I've, I've long thought him a sort of asterisk to this trend that I tended to stain in other respects. But now it seems, I guess I'll say this, I hope that he is thinking about how to transition in a way of his choosing rather than to transition in a way not of his choosing. Mm-hmm. Because it's looking like that is what he is facing. Like he can either make this... Mm seamless or it can be very awkward and difficult for the interests of the party that he ostensibly represents so we'll see i guess before i go to the caller on the phone patrick i uh, i want to go to you i mean this is a this is yeah. a problem afflicting both parties because yep. while uh, mitch mcconnell is having these very public incidents uh, diane feinstein is not yeah. really having any public incidents because right. she is being kept as far away from the cameras as they can possibly keep her because yeah. uh, it seems pretty obvious that she is really not capable of doing that job anymore, but you don't equally don't see the pressure mm-hmm. on the Republican side for any of these people to get out of the way. You're not seeing it on the Democrat side either. Mm-hmm. And I think what this speaks to more broadly is a calcification of power. And when you've been in office for a long, long time, when you've been part of the political apparatuses across the states for a long, long time, you gain a ton of power. And this is where I challenge my friends who don't support term limits. And I'm talking about generous term limits. I think 20 years in Congress is a pretty good run. But but folks that come out and say, listen, I don't like term limits because it limits the power of the people. I would argue that folks who have been in power that long are borderline impossible to unseat just because of kind of the the generational investment that they've made into their organizations. And so we're seeing folks carry on into power despite losing a lot of the substance that I think voters chose when they first elected them. And so this is a big, broader reform for another conversation. But I would say, yeah, the whole thing is tragic and sad. And we shouldn't wait for folks to die, either in Congress or in the Supreme Court, uh, before we replace them with other with other public servants. Yeah, and on Diane Feinstein, by the way, I mean, California Democrats had two bites at choosing someone else in the last election. They had the primary, and then they had another Democrat who made it through the primary into the general. They could have chosen somebody different. Yeah. It's not like it's new that Diane Feinstein has all these problems. Yeah. This is uh, this is old stuff. With I've I've been hearing Democrats complain. So to speak, fr- friends on the well, friends on the Hill have been telling me for years that she like falls asleep in committee meetings, and so I I don't think any of this is new. Voters. In California, made a choice, and this is the choice that they made. Yeah. So uh, to that point, what Patrick just brought up, and before Sam, I want you to hold on on line one because I am going to come to you. Um, does this illustrate the need for term limits at a federal level? No, yeah, we have them. We have elections. Of course it does. In in the same way that we support minimum wage, or in the same way that we support, com- support. pro competitive economic policy, <laughs> I think when there's market power, then people are able to do things that they shouldn't be allowed uh, to. And I think in politics, I, you have the same problem. I agree. Uh, term uh, limits are just as be. bad an idea as the minimum wage. <laughs> Jack, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I just think so. Term limits—they're they, an idea that are—it's perennial, perennially proposed right and left, and it sounds nice, but I think it has downsides that people don't think about. So, think about Michigan, for example. Uh, that is pretty strict term limits in its state legislature, and the result is that 
the bench of yeah. elected office holders is perennially thin, mm-hmm. and the people who actually control the state are the staff and the bureaucracy. Yeah. So that that makes me uncomfortable. And I that's totally, one of the reasons that I, that I I totally hear that, that and that's why I think term limits at the federal level and term limits that are quite long and quite generous. Twenty years in the Senate, twenty years in Congress, twenty years in the Supreme Court is a long. That's a generation of time. That's enough. Unless voters say differently. But, but as we said, voters can be swayed by enormous, unsurmountable organizations built up over or, more or than a generation. Not be. Yeah, Think of what happened to Joe Crowley to in New York. That's true. Yeah. That's a fair yep. point. Yep. We do, have, we do have plenty of examples the other way. I want to go to Sam calling from South Carolina on line one. Sam, you're on Beyond the Beltway. Go ahead. Sam, are you there? The Democrat, they called in. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Yes, we can hear you. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. The the Democrat that called in and said that it was immoral to vote for Donald Trump. Here is where the morality in voting for Donald Trump comes in. He's trying to save America from becoming a third world sewer. And if America falls, the rest of the world falls. The rest of the free world falls because there's nothing to stop China, Russia, and Iran and places like that from becoming the world's superpowers. Where's the morality in that? There is none. It will be darkness on the entire planet if that happens. So there's a lot of morality in voting for Donald Trump. And I think the Sam, uh, we, we're short on uh, Sam. I apologize. We're short on time, and I want to get our guests in to respond. Jonathan, go ahead. Sure. So I bet Sam and I probably agree on a lot uh, in terms of the issues. Uh, I just don't think Donald Trump is the guy who's a going to solve those problems. B actually cares about them, or C has any interest i mean he, donald trump is all about donald trump so the the and and like the, the the four years the guy was in office not only did he not solve any of those things that you just talked about he made many of them actively worse he chose bad people to be in office and then he blames everybody but himself for all those bad people that he put in office and all the bad things that happened while he was president everybody is to blame but donald trump he's a typical narcissist if your daughter was in a relationship with him you would want her out <laughs> Uh, Jack, 30 seconds, uh, if you want to jump in on that as well. I'll just say this, ditto. How about that? <laughs> That's uh, perfectly economy summed in, up. In, I, economy and language. And then let me quickly uh, just make it, a plug for the Biden foreign policy that has done a really good job building alliances of democracies across the world, <laughs> Europe, and Asia Pacific to stand up to China. He's good. Can I take back some of the time I just gave up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, you, you, uh, I don't Jack, so. you make these we'll decisions to... and you don't know That's the whirlwind true. that you're going to reap. You don't know the unintended That's... consequences of the decisions indeed, you make and the indeed. moments that you make them. Just like with term limits, plenty of unintended consequences there as well. But much more to discuss in our final segment of the program when we come back. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. Sub gets its exquisite zinc and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra. On top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above.
forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Back now for our final segment on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And uh, Jonathan, I want to come to you. Uh, I want to go back to our caller, Sam, there, uh, who I know you had made kind of the uh, appeal earlier for why you think it is important for the Republican Party to move on from Donald Trump, um, that you have uh, had in fact described uh, the adherence to Donald Trump, the clinging on to him as, as having a religious fervor. Mm. How do you begin to start persuading people like Sam that Donald Trump is not the answer? Is it possible, or is this just the kind of thing where a fever is going to have to break, that he's going to have to be renominated and he's going to have to lose in 2024 if the Republican Party is going to move on? Or to ask another way, does it have to get worse before it gets better? Yeah, do the beatings have to continue until morale improves? <laughs> um, the problem listen, is the morale never improves and right. the beatings always continue. Listen, I, I will say that the, the, the people like not people like me, but, but people people who stayed in the party uh, and who thought like me, people who were never Trump but stayed in the party, because I left the party, uh, they, um, they've moved toward 
the MAGA people on a lot of issues. And that hasn't done it because for a lot of people, I don't know about Sam, but for a lot of people, the issue isn't policy or, or particular outcomes or the way that we're governed or personnel. The issue is one man, is a personality. That's a, that's a religion. Uh, if there's nothing that Donald Trump could do to lose your vote, you're not in a political party. Mm-hmm. You're in a religious movement. And it's fine if you want to make your politics your religion, but that makes me re- I have a religion that I'm very happy with, and I don't need politics to be my religion. So I would just say, you know, to, to people like Sam, I, I don't know what the answer to your question is, Eric. If I knew, I would have already done it. And, uh, or, or, and if people who are smarter than me are looking for the same thing. But what I can say is that, you know, to people like Sam, he and I probably align on most of the things that we want to see this country do. Um, Donald Trump didn't get us there in four years. He's not going to get us there in four more years. And all he does is tick people off. So if your goal is to tick people off, if your goal is to wrap your arms around Donald Trump because he's Donald Trump, you know, then that's where you and I differ because I just I want outcomes and he's not going to deliver them. Yeah, Jack, uh, it, it it is a different kind of politics and kind of a politics of dopamine hits. Right. So like yeah. instead of <laughs> outcomes, there seem to be a lot of people who are looking for outrage uh, and want that to be the dominating force in in our politics and i I know at at national review and you and many of your colleagues write about these issues um any thoughts you have on like you know how do we begin moving on from i know if you go back through history we've seen a cult of personality in american politics before but you know this this one seems i don't know it seems different maybe that's only because we're living through it but there seems to be something different about this yeah, well, I'm more of an endorphins guy than a dopamine guy, so maybe I bring a bitter, uh, bring a different perspective here. So I agree with much of what Jonathan said that making arguments, you can't, you're not going to convince any current Trump voter to change his mind. There was a funny, there's a, a funny Onion video a couple years ago. A Trump voter feels betrayed after reading 800 pages of feminist theory. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Uh, what might work is some of the things Jonathan said about outcomes and about Trump's fundamental selfishness right now. So this may be hard for some people on the left to understand, but in the, uh, the Trump 2016 campaign, ultimately the form it took, Trump was a central part of it, obviously, but he was campaigning on behalf of mm-hmm. a group of people and a group of issues. Right now what's happened is that He's collapsed all that into himself as the only issue. Mm-hmm. And that just seems, and he, he whines over and over again about 2020 and about various permutations of that, of that uh, esoterica that he's dwelling on. That seems to me like something you could pry people away from if they're interested in literally anything else. Right now, the polling in the Republican primary is not optimistic on that front, but I remain optimistic because I believe in people ultimately. So there's a, there's a very good book that I strongly recommend called um, True Believer by a guy named Eric Hoffer, who was funnily enough a stevedore before he became mm, yeah. a philosopher. Great, great book, and it talks about why cults of personality take hold and what the, the like the society looks like in which these kinds of leaders are able to emerge and it's societies that look in a lot of ways like early 2000s united states where folks are lonely we have fewer friends than we've had in the last 50 years uh society is weaker it's more fragmented we live farther apart we live in bigger houses uh we're getting paid less to work harder all the things that i talked about earlier and the 
the outrage expressed itself in the vessel of Donald Trump Mm -hmm. in 2016. And that's a lesson that I think Republicans and Democrats have been researching and thinking about and trying to take to heart. And it's hard, but it's something that we need to tackle. Government needs to be responsive to the people. Politics needs to be responsive to what folks are feeling and thinking. And I think politicians in both parties that are able to do that, folks like Sherrod Brown, folks like John Tester, are going to be successful and I hope restore some some sense of hope uh, to the electorate. I, I think that some of the things you're talking about are, are, are not political, though. The decay of social capital is, is something that's hard to turn to politics to solve, which makes this all the trickier. I'm I don't not- know that I agree, because my politics tells me that we need to rein in multinational companies that are screwing workers out of their wages, and that does get political. So I, I hear where you're coming from. The, the, decra- the, the, you know, the, the fraying of the social fabric seems abstract and philosophical, but honestly, like the, the political tradition that I'm coming out of says we need to pass policy to improve that. Jonathan, in the last 30 seconds to you, uh, how much of this can be addressed by politics or is this factors well outside of it? I mean, I, I also think that it's it's factors well outside of politics. I think that there, there are a number of, as I said earlier, there are a number of institutions uh, from very small institutions like the family to very large institutions like the federal government that are just fundamentally broken in this country. And we have a lot of broken people. And uh, you know, fentanyl abuse is a great example of one repercussion of that. And uh, the, uh, the there's uh, you know we have a broken culture the engines of our culture are broken the incentives are all wrong for uh, yep. nearly every level of life I, I i think that those things are not fixable by policy uh, those things that any, requires uh, a and spiritual the democratic party they always says tell that you, they are they always tell you anytime you can end on a happy note you should always do it that's <laughs> just why Jonathan greenberg there yeah, our conservative Patrick Hanley, our Democrat, Jack Butler from National Review joining us in the second hour. And thanks to Mike Miller, who joined us in the first hour, our economist expert. Thanks to Bruce Dumont for handing the microphone over to me this evening. Eric Cohn filling in for him on Beyond the Beltway. We'll see you next time. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve. By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. 
At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at nhtsa.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.